When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Multi-Level Mondays, a weekly series all about pyramid schemes, Ponzi schemes, multi-level marketing, and other forms of business fraud. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're talking about one of the biggest business scandals and frauds in US history, Enron. I've been meaning to tackle this whole ordeal for some time now, but it's an extremely long and complicated situation. So I'll warn you ahead of time, I may not be able to go into great depth in every single aspect of this case, I'm going to do my best, but this whole situation is probably one of the messiest I've ever had to break down. There's even like a two hour long documentary about Enron that I watched just to write this. And even that doesn't necessarily mention everything. But without further delay, let's get right into this. What the hell was Enron and what happened? Now, before we can even talk about Enron, we need to talk about their origins. Enron began as Northern Natural Gas Company, organized in Omaha, Nebraska in 1930 by three other companies. North American Light and Power Company and United Light and Railways Company each had a 35% stake in the new enterprise, while Lone Star Gas Corporation owned the remaining 30%. The low cost of using natural gas as a heating fuel earned them a lot of money in the Great Depression when times were tight, to put it mildly. Northern continued to grow throughout the decades. It acquired the gas gathering and transmission lines of Argus Natural Gas Company in the 40s, as well as many, many others. Its name became Internorth in 1980. According to one source, although still officially named Internorth, the merged company initially known as HNG Internorth with dual headquarters in Omaha, Nebraska and Houston, Texas. In 1986, the company's name was changed to Enron Corp and headquarters were consolidated in Houston. After some shuffling in top management, Kenneth L. Lay, HNG's chairman, merged as chairman of the combined company. HNG Internorth began divesting itself of businesses that did not fit in its long-term goals. The $400 million in assets sold off in 1985, including the People's Division, which sold for $250 million. Also in 1985, Peru's government nationalized Enron's assets there and Enron began negotiating for payment, taking a $218 million charge against earnings in the meantime. In 1986, Enron's chemical subsidiary was sold for $603 million. Also in 1986, Enron sold 50% of its interest in Citrus Corporation to Sonat Inc. for $360 million, but continued to operate Citrus's pipeline system. Citrus originally was part of Houston Natural Gas. So from the onset, we're not talking about a small company that made some mistakes along the way, but a company that was basically made to scam people since its inception. It wasn't until Kenneth Lay founded Enron through this merger in 1985 and when Jeff Skilling envisioned a new trading model for the company in 1988 that this became clear and things began to change. Jeff Skilling figured that since the gas prices were so volatile thanks to new laws allowing for deregulation, they needed a gas bank to act as an intermediate between suppliers and buyers of natural gas. Enron began offering utilities long-term fixed price contracts and by all accounts, this was successful. In 1992, Enron was the largest merchant of natural gas in North America and the gas trading business became a major contributor to their net income. 
So who were these men running Enron, taking it to such great heights? Well, Kenneth Lay was the son of a Baptist minister. He had a ton of ambition, often dreamed about a life of wealth for him and his family, and he'd do anything to get there. Lay got a PhD in economics and was often described as being ahead of the curve when he advocated for deregulating the national gas industry. This is what brought him to Enron in 1985 in the first place. Early on, he got in with important people like George Bush Sr., who secured billions in government subsidies for Enron International. Lay was deregulation's ambassador at large and was described as wrapping himself in a cloak of moral rectitude. As for Jeff Skillings, he was basically a golden boy that went to Harvard, he worked for McKinsey and Company upon graduation, and he began working for Enron fairly early in his career. However, only two years after this merger, Enron had their first scandal, the Valhalla scandal, according to the New York Times. An Enron subsidiary, the Enron Oil Corporation, set up its office in Valhalla, New York in 1985. By October 1987, the SEC had begun investigating the two top executives there and the office was shut. Though a far cry from the dimensions of the current scandal, the massive one in 2001 that shut them down, the financial finagling does have eerily similar elements. In October 1987, the SEC accused Louis J. Borgett, then the unit's president, and Thomas N. Mastroni, its secretary treasurer, of executing sham oil trades over those years. The two men, court documents show, set up fake offshore companies to disguise the trades and falsified records to conceal them from company officials in Houston. The two executives pleaded guilty in federal court in White Plains to fraud-related charges and tax evasion. Mr. Borgett served a year in jail and Mr. Mastroni was put on two years probation in order to do 400 hours of community service. This previous Enron scandal was the subject of a recent article in the Financial Times. The fake oil trades cost Enron more than 136 million in losses. At the time, Kenneth L. Lay, the chairman, called the loss an expensive embarrassment. This was the very first hint that something terrible was lurking beyond the surface. It didn't make much sense that the company kept having these steadily increasing returns and veteran traders were suspicious of their high profits when oil trading was so incredibly volatile. Borgett didn't just convert currency and give it to some mysterious trader no one could find. He was putting this money in his own account. Hell, the money had been given to a Mr. M. Yass, my ass in other words. They were diverting profits to personal accounts, manipulating earnings and destroying company records. Yet Kenneth Lay didn't fire or discipline the traders. Instead, he asked Mr. Borgett, please keep making us millions. These trades were fraudulent. Ken Lay knew they were occurring, but he maintained to the public that he'd been shocked, that he didn't know they'd gambled away Enron's reserves. So Kenneth Lay needed a new way for the company to make millions and dishonest high profits. And that's where Skilling came in. Jeff Skilling thought that Enron should become a sort of stock market for natural gas. Rather than be bound by the physical flow of a pipeline, they should transform energy into financial instruments that could be traded like stocks and bonds. One of his former executives said that he was like a prophet to the industry and the excitement in the air was palpable. They had a new way to do business, but Jeff had one condition before he joined Enron. One thing he wanted to do. And that was a form of accounting that would ultimately lead to Enron's downfall. In the late 90s, the business adopted mark-to-market accounting, which meant that once a long-term contract was signed, the present value of the stream of future inflows under the contract was recognized as revenue. To put it simply, they were counting their chickens before they hatched. Enron could say, hey, we have a massive revenue. Look at how much money we're earning because we signed a long-term contract with Amazon. And so you, an investor, wouldn't know the difference between actual income they had coming in or projected revenue they had from contracts. Now, if the money was coming from a contract with Apple or Amazon or Google or whoever, then that might not be such a big deal. Like it's a sure thing, right? 
The trouble is Enron's contracts weren't always exactly with fantastic companies earning them boatloads of money. One of them was actually Blockbuster Video of all things. In July, 2000, Enron signed a 20 year agreement with Blockbuster Video to introduce entertainment on demand to multiple US cities by year end. Enron would store the entertainment and encode and stream the entertainment over its global broadband network. Pilot projects in Portland, Seattle, and Salt Lake City were created to stream movies to a few dozen apartments from servers set up in the basement. Based on these pilot projects, Enron went ahead and recognized estimated profits of more than 110 million from the Blockbuster deal, even though there were serious questions about technical viability and market demand. In another example, Enron entered into a $1.3 billion 15-year contract to supply electricity to the Indianapolis company, Eli Lilly. Enron was now able to show the present value of the contract reportedly for more than half a billion dollars as revenues. Enron then had to report the present value of the costs of servicing the contract as an expense. However, Indiana had not yet deregulated electricity, requiring Enron to predict when Indiana would deregulate and how much impact this could have on the cost of servicing the contract over the 10 years. To the outside world, Enron's profits were basically whatever they said it would be. To Jeff, an idea was everything, so he wanted to count the value of that idea to include it in how much money Enron made before the money actually came in. He'd been described as having a very Darwinian view of how the world worked, and it trickled down and affected everything about how Enron did business. Jeff said that money is the only thing that motivates people, and he adopted the PRC, or Performance Review Committee, to grade employees from a one to five, one being the best. He said that roughly 10% of people were bound to be five and thus had to be fired, hence a scheme known as rank and yank. Other sources have stated, whether they're fair or not, bell-like curve rating systems, which many employees now call rank and yank, have spread in recent years to some 20% of US companies and the trend is growing. They're practically handy during periods of economic slowdown when employees tend to cling to their jobs rather than retire or change positions. That lowers the normal rate of departures through attrition, which can run as high as 20% of a corporate workforce when people feel like job hopping, just when companies are seeking to cut their costs to satisfy Wall Street. People are hearing about friends who have been let go, said John Challenger, CEO of the Challenger, Gray, and Christmas outplacement firm. And they say, this is not the time to take a risk, so they stay. Many companies were just as fond of ranking and yanking when times were good, since the threat of poor ratings and their consequences help concentrate the minds of workers. Or as Michael Loeb, a San Francisco expert in employment law puts it, you don't want companies where everyone's completely comfortable. Perhaps not, but the forced ranking system have ignited legal filestorms. Lawsuits been brought by past and present employees have changed Microsoft, Ford, and Conoco with using the systems to favor some groups of workers over others, such as white males over blacks or women and younger managers over older ones. So of course, top to bottom rankings also provide a method for identifying and rewarding strong performers and encouraging everyone to work harder and smarter. Management has to lift everyone up, not just use the process to brand and target people, says Edward Jensen, a partner in the Atlanta office of Accenture, formerly Anderson Consulting. Firing people for the sake of it is questionable at the very least, and at Enron, this competitive nature was in their blood. Former employees said that they were so massive that if you wanted to enter this market, Enron had become unavoidable. You had to deal with Enron. Their traders were the super powerful high school clique that even the principal didn't try to rein in. The culture of the place was all about risk to the point where at times you get sort of a cultish vibe about hearing about the stories there. Skilling apparently adored risk so much that he and a core group of men at Enron would go on wild, dangerous biking adventures where people broke bones and needed stitches and nearly died on these company trips. 
The Cult Education Institute even has an article about how Enron, at the very least, did adopt some behaviors that are considered cultic, such as the rank and yank ideology that pitted people against one another, but the internal aggression in general. Their article reads, Clearly, the switch from affirmation to punishment within Enron meant that employees regularly received mixed messages. On one hand, they were the cleverest and best in the world, a form of positive reinforcement or love bombing that would be hard to better. On the other, they would be branded as losers, a favorite term of abuse for those that fell at the PRC hurdle and fired at any time. Consistent with disorientation, an erosion of one's confidence in one's own perceptions, and most crucially, a further compliance with the group's leaders that strengthen conformist behavior in general. Thus, mixed projecting the illusion of choice while actually intensifying control by the group's leaders. Such messages also constrain topics of discussion, further reinforcing conformist behaviors. The ambiguities and inconsistencies of mixed messages became undiscussable within Enron but the prevailing culture rendered the undiscussability and the undiscussable also undiscussable. There were no forums where employees could communicate about such concerns beyond whatever informal grapevines managed to survive in such a hostile climate. Thus, within Enron, it was clear to all that dissent would not be tolerated. Unsurprisingly, this shady behavior led to some incredibly shady people working at Enron, one of whom was a man named Lou Pai, who Jeff referred to as my ICBM, Lou Pai has been referred to as the invisible CEO as he was in charge of Enron Energy Services, but was apparently rarely seen by any of the employees he worked with. I'm not going to talk about Lou much really, but he would apparently bring strippers into the office and cheat on his wife with them. So he's not exactly a stand-up guy to just be frank about it here. The main point people make about him is how he managed to sell his stock just before the company went under and left with $250 million. His timing and departure from Enron is suspicious here, and he's absolutely had to pay out to shareholders, but he hasn't been charged with or admitted to any wrongdoing in the scandal to come. Still, he's yet another person that benefited from the mass amount of people investing in Enron. Now, Enron was doing fantastic to outsiders. The market in general was doing great, really. Enron made it a massive point to tell everyone to invest in them, that they were new, innovative, and different. Employees were surrounded by how the company was doing in the stock market. They had their numbers posted in the elevator. Until their downfall, they were named American's most innovative company for six years in a row. They could hide their debt using SPVs or special purpose vehicles, now known as SPEs or special purpose entities, pushing their mountains of debt and toxic assets elsewhere. There's a handy little comic about this on Investopedia's website that demonstrates how this worked with Enron and how they failed to disclose any conflicts they may have had resulting from these SPVs too. Still, by all accounts presented to the public, Enron was soaring. Yet in reality, profits weren't going up. Their vast natural gas operations all over the world were mostly performing terribly. They built a power plant in India, but India couldn't afford to pay for the power the plant produced. To this day, the power plant is still operating at a loss. Enron was still living in the land of pretend, paying millions of dollars of bonuses to executives to profits that were never even realized. Worse yet, analysts were almost always invested in Enron themselves, unable to give an unbiased point of view and trusting Jeff at his word. John Olson was one of the only analysts skeptical of the Enron story at this time, making him Enron's number one enemy. One source states, after all, when Enron said jump, most analysts ask how high. Most analysts that is, but not John Olson. The senior vice president and director of research at Houston-based securities firm Sanders Morris Harris has always been skeptical of Enron's excesses. At the risk of being the laughingstock of Texas society, Olson refused to join the herd in touting a company whose business grew ever more opaque and incomprehensible, even as its share price soared. 
And while almost every other analyst had buy recommendations on Enron stock, Olson steadily maintained that the company was not very forthcoming about how it made money and that no analyst worth his salt can seriously analyze Enron. Of course, every company bets on the future when it makes investments and takes on debt, but Enron seemed to be a candidate for Gamblers Anonymous. Olson knew something wasn't quite right. I live in Houston. It's a small town in a certain sense. It's the energy capital, he says. All the vibes from ex-Enron employees and former auditors were that these people were riding the edge with everything. Naturally, top brass at Enron didn't take kindly to his attitude. An account published in the New York Times reported that Lay also tried to silence Olson by complaining to his boss. After US News and World Report published Olson's critical comments about Enron last year, Lay reportedly sent Olson's boss a handwritten note that said, John Olson has been wrong about Enron for over 10 years and is still wrong, but he is consistent. According to the Times, when his boss showed him the note, Olson retorted, you know that I'm old and I'm worthless, but at least I can spell consistent. And for the record, uh, it was written C-O-N-S-I-S-T-A-N-T instead of T-E-N-T, just for the record. Enron had an excellent investor relation campaign to explain and lend support to the rising stock price, says Olson. But he notes, if you kick enough tires and talk to enough people, you knew that you didn't really know what the company was up to. Enron even got into the market where they wanted to sell bandwidth, getting into that deal with Blockbuster that we mentioned earlier, which is probably one of the largest reasons as to why Enron even fell apart. By the end of the year 2000, they were struggling to make the business look successful since the technology simply didn't work and they couldn't exactly deliver on their promises that they said they could. They already promised with his Mark II intent strategy that they made tens of millions of dollars, but they couldn't prove it. People started getting desperate in selling their stock like Lou Pai and many of the other higher ups and executives. As time went on, Jeff had a harder time admitting he was wrong. And instead, in an honest way, Enron seemed to double down on their schemes and instead began selling weather future contracts. According to CNN, the most basic type of weather futures contracts allow traders to speculate on changes in the temperature. And in many cases, companies use them like insurance policies. When speculating on temperature, a buyer would pay for a premium for the option to wager on future temperatures. If the temperatures hit a specific level, then the buyer gets to collect the amount agreed upon by the seller. If it doesn't, the seller keeps the premium and the contract expires. In the right hands, these contracts can be quite useful. In the United Kingdom, for example, utility companies estimate that a one degree average temperature change causes a 5% swing in natural gas demand. If your company consumes a lot of natural gas, then you might want to purchase a futures contract to hedge against an increase in gas prices. Unfortunately, Enron was not the right hands. They were plowing full steam ahead. 1999 articles praised them as cutting edge and Kenneth Lay, as he's called in the documentary, may as well have been the captain of the Titanic himself. Jim Chanos, president of Kynikos Associates, began to point out that not everything was that as appeared with Enron. Analysts kept saying, you have to trust Enron, things are good. And Jim said, well, that isn't the point. Things are good until they're not. You can't simply take a company at their word. Jim Chanos told a reporter, Bethany McLean from Fortune about this, and she started to dig a bit deeper. Even though looking at Enron's financial statements, it wasn't obvious they'd committed fraud. It was obvious that the numbers weren't quite adding up. In March, 2001, Bethany asked Skilling, how does Enron make its money? And he couldn't seem to answer that question. Instead, Skilling interviewed by Bethany began to bully her for asking basic questions. Bethany would later go on to write a book about everything she discovered about Enron called The Smartest Guys in the Room, which later became the documentary. In Bethany's article, she wrote, Enron remains largely impenetrable to outsiders, as even some of its admirers are quick to admit. Start with a pretty straightforward question. How exactly does Enron make its money? Details are hard to come by because Enron keeps many of the specifics confidential for what it terms competitive reasons. 
And the numbers that Enron does present are often extremely complicated. Even quantitatively minded Wall Streeters who scrutinize the company for a living think so. If you figure it out, let me know, laughs credit analyst Todd Shipman of at the S&P. Do you have a year? Asked Ralph Pecolita, Fitch's credit analyst in response to the same question. To skeptics, the lack of clarity raises a red flag about Enron's pricey stock. Even owners of the stock are uniformly sanguine. I'm somewhat afraid of it, admits one portfolio manager and the inability to get behind the numbers combined with even higher expectations for the company may increase the chance of a nasty surprise. Enron is an earnings at risk story, says Chris Wolf, the equity market manager at JP Morgan's private bank, who despite his remark is an Enron fan. If it doesn't meet earnings, the stock would implode. People who raise questions are people who have not gone through our business in detail and who want to throw rocks at us, said Skilling. Indeed, Enron dismisses criticism as ignorance or as sour grapes on the part of analysts who failed to win its investment banking business. The company blames short sellers for talking down Enron. As for details about how it makes money, Enron says that's proprietary information, sort of like Coca-Cola's secret formula. Strangely and disturbingly enough though, this wasn't the end. The chief financial officer, Nady Fausto, as well as two other executives flew out to New York to talk to Bethany and explain how in fact Enron made its money. Bethany claims that she'll never forget it. At the end of the meeting, once the other two executives left the room, Fausto turned to her and said, I don't care what you say about the company, just don't make me look bad. But Fausto did that all on his own. Fausto was the only one burying the company's debt in these SVFs we mentioned earlier, pushing it all into companies he created and named Jedi, Chuko, Raptors, the other creative names. In a secret videotape released after Enron's collapse, Fasto can be seen selling LJM to a group of Merrill Lynch bankers. He pitches them on the benefits of investing in a fund that only buys assets from Enron. Fasto knew what kind of deal he was offering as CFO. This is a clear, obvious conflict of interest, but even more than that, LJM was created solely to keep himself tens of millions of dollars. 96 bankers invested in Enron and America's massive investment banks like Merrill Lynch, Citibank, Deutsche Bank, and others put up around 25 million each. These banks helped Enron cook their books and Enron's lawyers and advisors were all sitting there with their hands out, willing to stay quiet so long as they were being paid. But cracks were appearing, especially from Skilling in April, 2001. He was asked in a conference call why Enron couldn't release a balance sheet with its earnings statement. Skilling laughed and simply said, thanks very much, we appreciate it, asshole. A Fortune 500 CEO publicly calling their investor an asshole, probably not a good look. But worse than that, there were illegal happenings in California as well. California only needs 28,000 to 30,000 megawatts of power in December, and they have 45,000 to supply the state. Yet around 2000 to 2001, they were suffering blackouts. Why? Again, the numbers simply weren't adding up. These rolling blackouts weren't making sense. Controlled rotating outages were being implemented, but this was never about the lack of supply. As it turned out, Enron had not only rigged the market for deregulation back in 1998, but they created these artificial power surges to earn them billions of dollars in surcharges. In large part, this due to Tim Belden, who poured over the laws of the place in California in order to exploit their legal loopholes and to make money for Enron. The documentary quotes traders as stating, what we did was overlook the transmission line we had the rights on and said to California utilities, if you want to use the line, pay us. By the time they agreed to meet our price, the rolling blackouts had already hit California and the price of electricity went through the roof. At the flip of a switch, Enron was yanking California's economy on a leash, making money, betting on the price of electricity going up, making even more money out of that. The Enron traders never seemed to care about ethics, only profits. Thus, an absolute tidal wave of anger began rolling in. 
One woman threw a blueberry pie at Skilling at a conference. Protesters said that he had stolen millions from Californians and people were infuriated. But Ken Lay didn't have to account for anything, not yet at least, he still had a Trump card. After all, his good friend, George W. Bush, just became president when things were starting to look bad. Traders speculated that Ken Lay would become secretary of energy when Bush was elected. He had easy access to the Bush administration and even met with the vice president in April to insist that he needed to stay the course with deregulation. George Bush seemed to take the view that this was not their problem and they refused to intervene. Not to mention the FERC, the federal agency that regulates energy in the US, had a chairman that was yet another one of Ken Lay's buddies. Enron knew people all the way at the top. They could control just about anything. And they even had close ties with powerful individuals that seemed all too happy to give them a helping hand. According to a 2006 ABC article, the Houston-based company was among the first to back Bush when he ran for governor of Texas. Enron and its executives went on to become the largest source of financial support for Bush's gubernatorial campaigns, giving more than $500,000, according to a study by the Center for Public Integrity. Enron was the number one career patron for George W. Bush, said the center director, Charles Lewis. There was no company in America closer to George W. Bush than Enron. Lewis says the company's goal in backing Bush and other politicians was to encourage further deregulation of the energy industry. Enron made a decision that they needed government to go their way and they put money out to make sure it happened, he said. As Bush assumed the presidency, Enron had unusual access to the new administration's deliberations about energy policy and appointments to important posts. Lay served on the Bush transition team and helped interview candidates for the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which oversees the gas pipelines and electricity grids. Earlier this year, the commission's chairman, Curtis Hebert, who was considered for reappointment by the White House, declared himself offended by Lay's lobbying efforts. Hebert later quit the panel. When Vice President Dick Cheney drafted a new energy policy, he met with Lay and other Enron executives. Enron was reportedly the only company to be granted such a meeting. Enron alumni also fill prominent slots in the Bush administration. The president's chief economic advisor, Larry Lindsay, and the top trade negotiator, Robert Zolik, both served as advisors to the company. Secretary of the Army Thomas White was an Enron executive before joining the administration. When he assumed the Army post, White was forced to sell more than $25 million in Enron stock, according to a financial disclosure form he filed. Bush had been described as being in bed with Enron even before he was sworn in as president. But no matter who Enron knew, even they couldn't stop the massive storm that was coming and the absolute shitstorm that was on their hands. Now, before we get into looking at just how things fell apart for Enron, let's take a quick moment to thank today's sponsors. We all shop online and we've all seen that promo code field taunt us at checkout. But thanks to Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. And honestly, thank God, because with so many hidden coupon codes out there, like, where are you gonna find it? They're hiding all over the place. So thank you, Honey, for that one. Honey is the free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one and puts it to your cart. Honey supports over 30,000 stores online, and they range from sites that have tech and gaming products to popular fashion brands and even food delivery. And this is the weirdest thing. I was doing some shopping for my candle shop, getting like some supplier stuff. And there was a discount code for that too. And Honey popped up and I was like, are you serious? Like that was the coolest thing ever. It saved me so much money. So here's how it works. You just imagine you're shopping at one of your favorite stores. You go to check out, the Honey button drops down. You just click apply, wait a few seconds, let it do the damn thing. And then voila, if you got a working coupon, watch the price drop. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free and installs in just a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting the podcast. 
and I'd never recommend something I don't use. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash MLM. Again, that's joinhoney.com slash MLM. By the end, the traders were running Enron. Skilling resigned as CEO almost out of the blue in the summer of 2001, citing personal reasons. Yet, I don't think anyone truly believed that. One representative from Pennsylvania, Jim Greenwood, told Skilling, an earthquake struck Enron after your departure and people in far inferior positions, you could see the cracks in the walls, feel the tremors, feel the windows rattling. And you want us to believe that you sat there in your office and had no clue it was about to collapse? Absolutely not. Skilling knew that Enron was going to fall apart. He just wanted to get out of there before the ship sank completely. The day after Skilling left, in fact, Sharon Watkins sent a letter to Ken Lay, chairman turned CEO. In mid to late June of 2001, she worked for Fasto, the CFO. Sharon said that she was put in charge of asset listing. Sharon said that Fasto had gambled Enron's future on an idea that its stock would never fall, but his numbers didn't add up. Even more insulting and frustrating to me is that after Sharon stepped in as a whistleblower stating that this company was committed horrible, terrible fraud, Kenley is quoted as saying this, just like America's under attack by terrorism, I think we're under attack. Really, Ken, you're going to compare yourselves to the victims of 9-11? As much as I try not to let my personal opinion leak into these episodes, uh, fuck you, Ken, just, just fuck you. Their accounting firm, Arthur Anderson, began taking action. And by that, I mean shredding files, about one ton worth of paper. When Fasto's 45 million in earnings from the LJM accounts, he was fired and essentially set up as the fall guy. But it couldn't have just been Fasto, Ken, Lay, and Skilling. There were billions and billions in loans, banks involved, lawyers that representative, even though much of the blame lies with those at the very top. It was too easy to assume that these high-level executives were the only ones involved. But finally, it came crashing down. By the summer of 2001, Enron was in a freefall. Analysts began to downgrade their rating for Enron stock, and the stock descended to a 52-week low of $39.95. By October 16th, the company reported its first quarterly loss and closed its Raptor SPV. This action caught the attention of the SEC. A few days later, Enron changed pension plan administrators, essentially forbidding employees from selling their shares for at least 30 days. Shortly after the SEC announced it was investigating Enron and the SPVs created by Fasto. Fasto was fired from the company that day. Also, the company restated earnings going back to 1997. Enron had losses of $591 million and had $690 billion in debt by the end of 2000. The final blow was dealt when Dienergy, a company that had previously announced it would merge with Enron, backed out of the deal on November 28, 2001. December 3, 2001, Black Monday, the day that Enron declared bankruptcy. CEO Ken Lay had left a voicemail on the phones of all Enron employees asking they come into the office regardless. Nearly 5,000 were called to a massive meeting and were told that the paychecks they had recently received would be their last, three weeks before Christmas. Employees suffered. After all, skillings and higher-ups had been telling them to invest in Enron stock, and by the time Enron declared bankruptcy, they were left with nothing. One man claims that at its peak, his 401k was worth $348,000. When he sold it, he got $1,200 for it. The stock price sank from $90 to less than a dollar within a year. Everything came crashing down so fast. Some former employees say that beyond the loss of their job and retirement savings, they were seen as evil for ever having worked there. I absolutely don't think that everyone who ever worked at Enron was corrupt. I do think that some of the things the traders did and said were pretty disgusting as you'll hear throughout the documentary, but all in all, it's the attitude from the higher ups that created all of this. As the higher ups were made to face the consequences of their actions, it became too much for some to bear. One executive named J. Clifford Baxter committed suicide and wrote in his note that there was a great pride now it's gone. 
A former employee that knew him well said he was a good man who had been tied up in his success at Enron. It's hard to look at your life's work and say it failed, she explained, but you have to take a cold, long look at yourself and say, who am I? Who did I become? In addition to Andrew Fasto, a major player in the Enron scandal for Enron's accounting firm, Arthur Anderson LLP and partner David B. Duncan, who oversaw Enron's accounts, As one of the five largest accounting firms in the United States at the time, Anderson had a reputation for high standards and quality risk management. However, despite Enron's poor accounting practices, Arthur Anderson offered its stamp of approval, signing off on the corporate reports for years. America's oldest accounting firm fell right along with Enron after what they'd done. Their reputation tanked and 29,000 jobs were lost. In June, 2002, they were found guilty of obstructing justice for shredding financial documents to conceal from the SEC. And though the conviction was overturned later on appeal, the firm was deeply disgraced by the scandal and they dwindled into a holding company. A group of former partners bought the name in 2014, creating a firm called Anderson Global. Top executives were paid bonuses totaling $55 billion while 20,000 employees lost their jobs and medical insurance. The average severance pay was about $4,500. In 2001, employees lost $1.2 billion in retirement funds. Retirees lost $2 billion in pension funds, while top executives cashed in over $100 million in stocks. But Anderson was only the beginning. Kenneth Lay was convicted on four counts of fraud and conspiracy of four counts of bank fraud. He died of a heart attack prior to sentencing. Andrew Fasto, CFO, pleaded guilty to two counts of wire fraud and securities fraud for facilitating Enron's corrupt business practices. He cut a deal for cooperating and was ultimately released in 2011. Jeffrey Skilling received the harshest sentence of anyone, as he should, and in 2006, he was sentenced of conspiracy fraud and insider trading. Though he initially received a 17 and a half year sentence and was required to give $42 million to the victims, he was released in early February, 2019. According to the FBI, the sheer magnitude of the case prompted creation of the Multi-Agency Enron Task Force, a unique blend of investigators and analysts from the FBI, the Internal Revenue Service Criminal Investigation Division, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and prosecutors from the Department of Justice. Agents conducted more than 1,800 interviews and collected more than 3,000 boxes of evidence and more than four terabytes of digitalized data. More than 164 million was seized. To date, about 90 million has been forfeited to help compensate victims. 22 people have been convicted for their actions related to the fraud, including Enron's chief executive officer, the president's chief operating officer, the chief financial officer, the chief accounting officer, and others. Considering the absolute magnitude of these crimes, it feels so odd for me to just say it's over now. Skilling's out of prison, Ken Lay has passed away, and it's over. Despite so many people being complicit, only 22 were convicted of any crimes. And it sure feels like the number should be higher, quite frankly. Even with everything we've talked about today, this is still somewhat of an overview. I didn't wanna get too deep into the numbers and accounting terms here because it can get confusing at times, but many millions and billions are thrown around. This all led to new regulations being formed after Enron fell. In July, 2002, President George Bush signed into law the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which heightens the consequences for destroying, altering, or fabricating financial statements and for trying to defraud shareholders. Additionally, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, FASB, substantially raised its levels of ethical conduct. Moreover, company boards of directors became more independent, monitoring the audit companies and quickly replacing poor managers. These new measures are important mechanisms to spot and close loopholes that companies have used to avoid accountability. I think it's ironic that the very administration that enabled this behavior and seemed to turn the other cheek is now the one acting like this isn't acceptable and signing acts that call for greater consequences, but that's just my opinion. I've got no idea how much Bush truly knew, but they were certainly taking Enron's millions without question when it contributed it to its campaign. 
It's just especially disgusting to me how much these executives cashed out, how Lou got away with hundreds of millions of dollars, while those lower down on Enron's corporate ladder fought for shreds of Enron scraps. One NPR article reads, Enron employees and their families have suffered ruinous financial losses. 2.1 billion in employee retirement went up in smoke. It was easy to be fooled into pouring your retirement into Enron stock. Enron was a company that oozed money and success. Why not invest all or most of your retirement in Enron stock? That's what the smart money was doing. The image of stunned, angry employees sitting on the sidewalk in front of the crooked E logo. Cardboard boxes at their feet and heads in their hands is one of the lasting legacies of Enron. The employees join the long line of Enron creditors waiting to get some part of what they're owed. Nearly 8 billion in settlements are in various stages of approval, but it's impossible to calculate what the reimbursement percentage is going to be. For the older employees, they live their golden years as best as they can, hoping the wheels of justice will turn faster. The vast majority of the younger employees have by now found other work. Some found new jobs in Houston, others moved away. Every one of them poorer and wiser for their Enron experience. Just a few hours before Enron declared bankruptcy, chairman and CEO Ken Lay took the last million dollars out of a special loan account the company had set up for him. He used that million dollars to pay off his mansion. Two days later, the employees each got one last check for $4,600. The jury said yesterday that Ken Lay's crass act drawing down that last $1 million defined for them his bad intent. It strengthened their resolve to punish him for what he'd done. While some former employees claim to have mixed feelings about the whole thing, others who lost it all said they don't believe the executives deserved plea bargains. One woman, Diana Peters, was an Enron graphics clerk for nine years. After she lost her job, her pension, her 401k, and her health insurance, her husband was diagnosed with a brain tumor. While talking about Andy Fasto's plea bargain, she stated, It is not adequate because Andy Fasto didn't just go steal a piece of candy at a grocery store, she said. He has taken away or changed or reshaped 20,000 lives because there were 20,000 employees that worked at that company and everyone has been affected by it. Carol Perlman, a former Enron shareholder, lost 51,000 in retirement funds. Others like Anne state tearfully that she felt betrayed by a company she trusted. Anne was in her 60s ready to retire, but she's lost half a million dollars in her retirement fund and now has to continue working, according to CNN. Even the possibility of an additional 40 million in compensation isn't enough to convince Sherry Butler that Skilling should get out early. What he did was so egregious to so many people, said Butler, who lost $120,000 in stock options when Enron collapsed. I don't have any sympathy for him. Eric Eden is willing to give Skilling the benefit of the doubt when it comes to outright malice. I don't think he did it on purpose, said Eden, who worked as a power plant designer for Enron and now runs Watering Made Easy, a company that makes lawn irrigation systems. Skilling should have known better to use the fancy accounting tricks that laid out the foundation for Enron's demise. He sees all the lawyers and appeals as simply an extension of what went on at Enron. And for that reason, Skilling should serve his full 24 year term. Skilling really knows how to work the system, he said. He destroyed so many people's lives forever and he never really took responsibility for it. Obviously that's not what happened as Skilling has gotten out early, but I do wish he'd been in there longer and to be made an example of. The fact that he got the worst of the sentencing and is still free to walk around today is infuriating. Lou Pai ran off to a multi-million dollar home in Hawaii before things got bad. So what, because he knew to sell the stock when employees were being pushed to buy it, that means that he's fine to like live in luxury? Like that's infuriating. Not to mention, some sources say that in present day, Skillings is trying to start a digital energy marketplace. He's raising funds to start Veld LLC, which would charge fees for marketing stakes and operating gas and oil wells. So, gee, I wonder why someone doesn't trust a company made by Skillings. But seriously, shouldn't some kind of law be in place to keep this guy from having anything to do with energy companies? Like, there just isn't much news about this yet, and it's still recent as of writing this, but I wouldn't go near anything with that guy's name attached to it. 
But all in all, I don't have a happy ending here. I guess all that's left to say is that if something seems too good to be true, then it probably is. Enron was on top of the world until within weeks, they simply weren't. And the past caught up with them in one fell swoop. But with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something new. I I know I did. I really wanted to have like a more conclusive, shorter story of the just the run of Enron and what happened because everyone talks about Enron, but I feel we sometimes don't catch up on the details. So if you enjoyed today's episode, again, like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. If you wanna follow me outside of these episodes and connect outside of there, social media, Twitch, Discord server, you name it, it's gonna be all there in my description box. There's a link tree link, just click that. All the links are gonna be nice and organized for you. So thank you all so much for making it to another Multi-Level Mondays. I appreciate you and I'll see you in the next one. Bye. Allow me to-